Tonight, we take a unique perspective of the recent fourth Republican presidential debate of the 2024 GOP primary election cycle. The debate stage in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, transformed into a battleground of ideas, passions, and palpable tension. In this electrifying arena, Donald Trump's conspicuous absence hung in the air, casting a shadow as candidates fiercely clashed, invoking the ghost of the enigmatic frontrunner. Chris Christie, the former New Jersey governor, who barely made it onto last night's debate stage, took center stage after nearly 20 minutes of being ignored. Christie, a modern-day Cassandra, urged his peers to confront the looming specter that is Donald Trump. In a move reminiscent of the dramatic, Christie not only seized the microphone, but the narrative, challenging contenders to grapple with the truth outside the cave, a political landscape dominated by Trump's indelible silhouette. In this political arena, Chris Christie assumed the role of the unyielding ringmaster, steering the narrative away from the shadows and towards the truth. Nikki Haley, former UN ambassador, a prominent figure on the stage, found herself on the defensive, grappling with questions about her network her record on transgender policies, and her embrace of large corporate donors. Vivek Ramaswamy faced a challenging night, his previous provocations and inflammatory comments drawing boos from the audience. The stakes were high, with each contender vying for the coveted role of the philosopher king in this contemporary republic. Amidst the fervor, the candidates became actors in Plato's allegory of the cave, mere shadows wrestling with echoes of Trump's influence. DeSantis tried to free himself from these shadows, navigating through the flickering images with determination. Yet the provocateur, Christie, channeling the spirit of Socrates, forced his peers to confront uncomfortable truths and grapple with the reality of leadership in the absence of the missing frontrunner. The echoes of this debate reverberate through the corridors of ancient political thought. Professor Melissa Lane, a luminary in political philosophy, steps into the intellectual arena with her latest book of Rule and Office, Plato's ideas of the political. Her expertise rooted in the profound legacies of ancient Greek and Roman political thought offers a powerful lens through which we can decode the intricacies of this contemporary political drama unfolding. In the dialogue between the candidates, we recognize echoes of Plato's Republic, where the philosopher king's absence looms large, leaving the contenders grappling with the shadows and reflections of true leadership. Professor Lane, with her extensive background and intellectual prowess, promises to illuminate for us the enduring connections between rule and office, fostering a dialogue that transcends the boundaries of time. This is episode 122 of the Political Mic Podcast, and tonight we focus on how the wisdom of the ancients resonates with the challenges of today. Professor Lane, thank you for being a part of this episode of the Political Mic. Thank you for the opportunity to join tonight. So I want to start off the conversation by asking you, Professor, Observing the recent GOP presidential debate, do you see echoes of Plato's political philosophy and the strategies and rhetoric employed by the candidates last night? So one of the centerpieces of Plato's ideas, especially in his dialogue, The Republic, is that it's very difficult to tell the difference uh, between a philosopher and someone who's corrupted to the point that they can become tempted by tyranny. So for Plato, it might be the same person who originally has ambitions and could potentially pursue a life of understanding what is truly good and serving others, but they can be corrupted on their path and instead turn to a path of politics as exploitation. And so I think that question, how does one distinguish between the philosopher and the tyrant, between the sage and the sophist, uh, other terms that um, ancient philosophy uses, I think is always with us in the political arena. How might Plato's ideas of governance shed light on the dynamics we witnessed on the debate stations, especially considering the absence of Donald Trump, who's facing criminal charges and 
may not even be eligible to vote for himself, like Chris Christie said, if he is the nominee for his party. One of the profound moments in the Republic is when Plato is not discussing the ideal city. He does that also profoundly. But when he's discussing the travails of a democracy in which the practices and the commitment to an idea of accountable office might be declining. And when he describes that, one of the things that he describes is people who are unwilling to abide by the rules of their office and people who are not willing to actually um, orient their actions when they are in office according to the goals that they are meant to be serving. And he describes actually what happens when people who are meant who who think that they should rule are claiming to rule even though they don't want to play by the rules. And I think that moment in his in his dialogue when he's actually discussing how a democracy can degenerate into a tyranny, I think that's an incredibly resonant and concerning moment for us when we consider where we are in political life today. I recently had Professor Steve Levitsky of Harvard University on to discuss his latest work, The Tyranny of the Minority. And a lot of what you're saying tonight makes me think of that conversation that I had recently with the professor. Specifically, he talked about gerrymandering and other tactics to reduce the power of the majority and solidify power within the increasing minority. And then he also discussed some of the political tactics within the halls of Congress. Some of the maneuvers that we've seen, for instance, uh, we'll get into a little bit later in the discussion, from Senator Tommy Tuberville to obstruct the nomination of significant folks in the military. We've seen Mitch McConnell prevent President at the time, Barack Obama, from being able to even have a debate on his choice for the Supreme Court vacancy that was left with the death of Antonin Scalia in 2016. So we've seen maneuvers and tactics and tricks by, let's face it, one side of the of the political conversation to solidify and increase power. What are your thoughts about that? And does Plato offer any kind of solution to combat that kind of tactic? Yeah, so I think, again, this is something that Plato recognizes. So one thing that people often think about Plato is that he wasn't realistic. He had his head in the clouds. He wanted so much to get out of the cave that he just left the cave behind completely. Um, there's the story about the philosopher Thales, who was so busy thinking about the heavens that he walked along and tripped and fell into a pit. And that's often the way people think about Plato's philosophers as well. But what I want to argue in my book of rule and office is that actually Plato was very aware. He was an astute observer of these kinds of maneuvers and in the democratic politics in which he lived and the broader politics of the Greek world. So, for example, in another dialogue, The Laws, he actually talks about what happens when people who are in office only want to use all their efforts to keep their opponents out of office. So their goal in being in office simply becomes hanging on to those offices because they're afraid of what the other party will do to them if they get in. And he's very aware that if you have that kind of zero-sum exploitation of procedure, procedures alone can't save us. And, and I think one of the really challenging things for us to is to hold these two ideas in our head at the same time. Procedures are incredibly important. We have to honor the rule of law and protect it and maintain it. But we also have to recognize that it can be abused. It can be manipulated. And so we can't only say, oh, well, we were they, you know, as long as they followed the letter, it doesn't matter if the spirit was also violated, because ultimately that's going to corrupt the whole body politic. Drawing from your book of rule and office, how would you apply Plato's concepts of rule and office to other aspects of the current political landscape? We talked about 
some of the tactics of the minority. And, and many could argue that, look, there is a minority within the Republican Party that we've seen increasingly become more vocal and more of the majority of their party. And it manifested itself in the ousting of Kevin McCarthy from the speakership and the replacement of him with this guy, Mike Johnson, who played a role in the January 6th effort to overturn the 2020 election. Drawing from your book, what other concepts would Plato's philosophy be applicable in today's landscape? So I think Plato absolutely has at the heart of his understanding of every different possible um, political constitution or configuration is the question, how can it achieve the purposes of accountability? So my argument is that what's central to office as it's practiced in ancient Greece, and I think as it should be practiced today, is achieving accountability. It's mechanisms and um, means by which rulers can be held accountable when they've misused their, their powers. Now, what's interesting about Plato is though, again, he sees that institutions and procedures might be necessary, but not sufficient. And I think what we see here is, you know, if a party isn't willing itself to hold its leader accountable, so if it doesn't care whether criminal proceedings and civil proceedings are brought against someone, and let's say that that, that any of those suits, um, you know, succeed, we we haven't seen those those verdicts yet, but assuming that at least some of them may succeed, the question is really it's it's then down to the people, the voters, the ordinary citizens of a party whose leader X hypothesi has been found would if they are found guilty. In that case, are those people still willing to support that leader? And I think Plato would say, you know, all the procedures in the world, all the lawsuits in the world aren't going to help you if people themselves aren't willing to actually recognize the gravity of those of those um, proceedings and of, of the value of the reasons that underlie them, which is um, holding power accountable. So I, so I would say that um, Plato is, in a way, Plato also really captures, again, in this portrait of the degenerating democracy in the Republic, he captures these moments when people say, you know, why should we listen to you? So, you know, the, the very um, congressman who um, dethroned McCarthy and installed Johnson now don't want to obey Johnson, some of them, right? They don't want to follow any rules that will prevent them from simply doing what they want. And and I think Plato is very aware that democracies need procedures and they need those procedures to be followed, but the procedures won't won't enforce themselves. It needs people who are um, publicly committed to to do that. And that has to be true on, on all sides of the political aisle. We're about 40 days from the Iowa caucuses. The first votes being cast in this presidential election cycle, the election cycle of 2024. Considering recent political debates, we've just experienced the fourth a Republican debate in the primary cycle thus far. Are there trends in rhetoric that align with or challenge the principles outlined in your book of rule in office? Yeah, so uh, I think that the some some of the rhetoric that we see, I mean, so, so one thing is that, of course, Plato is profoundly concerned about the potential dangers of rhetoric. So you know, we, we, we know that um, one, that there's a danger that we see also in Thucydides, the great historian who was um, of previous generation from Plato, who talks about the way in which there's either an issue in democratic leadership where the um, people are following the leader or the leader is following the people, right? And you can get into a kind of bad cycle where the leaders are telling the people what they think they wanna hear and the people don't wanna hear, anything else that the leaders might 
you know, feel that they need to tell them. And so I think really um, the, the question that you began with, which is that question of, you know, what does it mean for a leader to say something that people don't necessarily immediately want to hear? Is that actually the task of a leader is to say that, but they have to say it. This is the challenge of rhetoric. They have to say it in a way that it can potentially be heard and that people will actually respond to it. Because if they say it in a way that simply antagonizes or goes over people's head or makes them feel disrespected, then of course it's simply going to backfire. And so I think um, the, the platonic, um, view of this challenge would be, you know, and, and I'm afraid that the answers that Plato has to offer are, we know these are the right answers, but they're also the hard answers. They are the answers about civic education and civic culture. So it's not an answer where somebody else is going to come and save us. It's an answer where the conversations that people have around their dinner table this holiday season and the conversations that they have with their aunts and their cousins and their coworkers and their students and their children, those are the conversations that are actually going to determine whether responsible choices are made um, in this election and account and, and, and accountable leaders um, are, are actually selected. Plato argued that rulers should serve the good of the ruled. How does this vision resonate with current discourse on governance and political leadership, considering the expectations placed on leaders and considering the fact that we have a front runner for one of the major parties promising to be quote unquote retribution, a totally different campaign from when he started in 2015, 2016, because this is not about trade policies anymore. This is not about feeling left out of the economy or anything like that. This is about pure revenge. This is about getting even with political enemies and awarding political loyalists. Can you elaborate on Plato's philosophy that rulers should serve the good of the ruled and how this vision resonates with the current political discourse? Yeah, I think that this is one of the most profound moments in Plato. Um, and it's actually a moment that stretches further back even. So I argue in my book of Rule and Office that it goes back even to Homer and other ideas that it doesn't mean it was always actualized. I mean, the Greeks had lots of bad politicians and tyrannical rulers too. So we're not saying ancient Greece was the perfect political utopia, but this fundamental difference between a ruler who is in power to serve themselves to exploit others, to use their power for their themselves and their cronies, and a ruler who's oriented to the good of others. That fundamental difference, I think, is still a really animating and, and important difference. And I think, you know, what's what's powerful about it is it doesn't depend on a controversial idea of what is the good. It doesn't, we can still have some disagreements about what is good, and we can still agree that a ruler should be oriented to the good of the people and not to lining their own pockets, benefiting their own friends, taking retribution against their own enemies, right? That's just a really fundamental difference. And so what Plato then argues is that in a sense, anyone who's in political office has to see themselves as occupying a role. The role tells them that that's what they have to do, that they have to be oriented in that way. And in the American constitutional system, that's embodied for the president in the oath of office. The president takes an oath to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. And so I think it's a really challenging moment for a country if someone is standing for an office who is running for an office who isn't 
seeing that the oath constrains their behavior in any way. So what we expect when someone is in an office is that they will modify their behavior. Their behavior will be altered because they are acting in that role. It is like being an actor. Cicero would say, you know, when we act in public life, we have a persona as an actor would wear a mask or put that on. But that's an important thing because you're putting on the mantle of office and you have to act as if you as you have to act in in that light, in that guise. And so I think we have to expect of all politicians on from all parties that when they're speaking, they're speaking with an with a with an understanding of themselves as public servants. And this is again perhaps another idea that we want to discuss from Plato, which is the, the idea that the aim of the ruler is to serve the good of the ruled, literally to act as a public servant. This is an idea that Plato operationalizes again in his dialogues. Can you draw parallels between the intricacies of political relationships in ancient times and the dynamics we observe in present day politics? So if we think about actual um, Athenian politics, uh, in Plato's day, so that he was living in a, in a democracy in democratic Athens in which he was born, um, there, there's a much more participatory dimension to Athenian politics. So ordinary citizens uh, can constitute the juries as they do for us today. But one of the differences is that there weren't professional judges. So, and there wasn't a requirement that the jury only decide uh, facts rather than law. The Athenian juries decided the whole picture. They kind of thought about what they understood the law to be, they thought about what the facts were, and they made a judgment about whether somebody had acted overall as a good democratic citizen. That was the question that they were acting. So one of the things that that meant was that it cultivated ordinary political judgment. And many of the offices that I've been talking about, not all of them, but many of them were also um, held by ordinary citizens. Sometimes they were chosen by lottery to hold those offices. Sometimes they were chosen by election in the case of all of the military offices, for example. So what that meant was that you did have a kind of widespread civic culture where people were practiced in what it was to kind of think about politics, to do everyday politics. And so what we might hope that they might have been less taken in by some kinds of damaging or manipulative political rhetoric. Now, that said, they also made some bad decisions sometimes. So when they were holding trials of, for example, generals to hold them accountable, sometimes they would punish a general just for having lost a battle. Right, even if the general didn't necessarily do anything wrong, or even in one famous case, the generals won the battle, but then didn't stay to pick up the corpses of the dead because of a storm. And those generals um, were punished as a result. So this isn't to say that ordinary people always get it right, but it is to say that there was a kind of cultivation of those everyday civic virtues, civic practices um, that could make it possible perhaps for people to at least sometimes um, have a have a good chance of kind of being able to have the right radar is uh, isn't someone in office are they acting for their own good are they lining their own pockets or are they um, are they are they serving us considering the current political climate marked by biden's low polling numbers how might plato's insights and former understanding of the challenges faced by contemporary leaders being able to govern when the general consensus is that folks disapprove overall of your tenure, although they may resonate and appreciate specific individual policies that you've been a champion of. 
Yeah, I think this is a very difficult, um, you know, it's a, it's a very difficult challenge. It goes back to that dynamic that I was describing, you know, how does the leader lead the people by saying things that they don't want to hear? And what if the people don't want to hear it? You know, so there is absolutely this, this, this sort of fundamental tension. Um, you know, the I mean, it's it's actually very interesting because, again, we might think, well, what can Plato have to say about this? Why should we draw on his ideas as I do and of rule and office? Because he is in the Republic advocating for philosopher kings and queens. He's saying the highest rulers in a society should be people who are chosen and tested not only for their love, uh, for their knowledge, which is the way we often think of it, but also for their care about the people for whom they're serving. So it's often forgotten that actually when the trainee rulers are sent back into the cave, you started talking about the cave, the trainee philosophers are sent back into the cave and they're going to be tested on how well they carry out those everyday tasks of politics, holding the everyday military and political offices. So all of that is to say, but so, so then we have this kind of problem. Well, why would the people accept philosopher kings and queens ruling? You know, of course, that's not our system, but it's a, it's a, it's a problem that I think has something in common with how does how do people accept a politician who they might not like or who's you know unpopular for a period or for certain reasons, right? And and I think the argument there has to be well, um, people. I think the politician has to help people to see. I'm truly doing my best by my lights to understand what you need, what, what you truly need, what you value, and why that's important. So the politician, I think, has to make use their rhetoric to make that connection, that connection about caring, that connection about recognition. And, and, and then they have to kind of try to find ways where they can be met halfway, you know, where people might say, okay, you know, I realize things haven't gone the way we wanted. We had a terrible pandemic, you know, life was better before the pandemic. There's no question about that. Various things led to inflation. That's been really problematic. There are wars in the world. It's a very difficult moment. At the same time, you know, let's look at ways in which what is within someone's control the decisions that they have been able to take in a very difficult, you know, situation of divided government. Um, how have those decisions been oriented towards helping people out with 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 their real problems with employment, with healthcare, um, with with schooling, and so on? And and I think that 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 sort of down to earth rhetoric of caring and and a sense of reminding people the ways in which politicians are not, you know, how can they demonstrate that they have been public servants for their career, that they have not put themselves first, that they have actually done their best. I think, you know, that, that that's that's all any politician can do. And, you know, they have to do their best to, to, to make that connection. We've heard time and time again from political pundits and from pollsters and political consultants that we're in a unique time in history where the majority of Americans don't approve of either of the leading contenders of the two major political parties heading into this election year, 2024. Did Plato view the role of citizen to be one in which, irrespective of personal feelings or whether you feel inspired by your leaders at the top, that you had to play a role and vote and engage in democracy? Or did he play emphasis on those in charge to inspire citizens 
to get behind them and galvanize support to inspire people to participate. Yeah, so I would say that Plato actually explores both of those um, possibilities and scenarios, and he really thinks hard about what both of them take. So in the Republic, the emphasis is put on the role of these leaders. Um, but again, I think it's very important that even there, Plato would say, if the people don't accept it, then it's not a good society. So he isn't saying the, the philosopher rulers should just be able to do whatever they want, impose themselves, and people don't like it, they can lump it. He says, no, if people actually don't accept it and understand and value that, that, that form of rule, then it's not a just society. It's not that constitution is failing. But he also, in another work, The Laws, which I mentioned earlier, which I also discuss in Of Rule and Office, he discusses a constitution which is much more like a democratic constitution and clearly inspired in significant ways by democratic Athens, also in, in other ways by other existing societies at the time. And, what, and there, the role of citizen that you asked about is absolutely fundamental because there, the citizens themselves are the people who hold the offices and everything is done through election. So whereas in Athens, many things were done through lottery or, or, or there, there are a few moments of, of lottery in the laws, but almost everything is done through election. And what's really interesting is that he works out these incredibly elaborate election mechanisms, election procedures with multi-stages in which, for example, you narrow down the candidates and then all the names of the candidates are sort of written up on, on sort of pot shards and then everybody should come and sort of mark out which ones did they want and which ones did they want to take away and so you winnow it down. So it's really very much like a primary right? It's actually exactly like a primary. People get to say, you know, we want that one. We don't want that one. And it's meant to be a situation of public debate where actually people are learning from, well, you know, who did you want, Mike? You know, well, this is why you wanted that person. Why did I want this other person? So it's actually, he's very interested in people sharing their reasons. And I think he believes that like people can have kind of relevant common knowledge, which you know, in good judgment about politics. And we need to find ways to kind of harness that. And so I think there are a lot of people who have been looking at ways, are there ways we could make our primary systems work better? You know, states, of course, have experimented with open primaries. Does that have a moderating function, you know, as in California, for example? Um, there are also, when you were talking about the problem with, you know, people don't want people from the two major parties, there are potential reforms where you could vote for a third party, but then all of their votes would then be automatically transferred to one of the other parties. So that would allow you effectively to register the way you wanted that other major party to go. The third party vote would be counted, but it wouldn't become a spoiler, right? It wouldn't be a wasted vote because it would ultimately feed back into the two party system. So I think there are actually a lot of ways that we could try to harness this kind of common knowledge um, along the kinds of lines that Plato begins to explore in, in, the, in the laws. Greek slavery's influence on Plato's ideas of freedom is a fascinating aspect of your work. In light of recent political discussions, how do you perceive echoes of Plato's views on freedom and slavery? Yeah, so this is, of course, when we talk about the ancient Greeks, it's absolutely central that we have to recognize that they practice slavery um, and that Plato's dialogues do not challenge the existence of slavery. Um, and indeed, as, as you suggested, um, scholars have, have demonstrated that Greek ideas of freedom um, were largely founded in these two contexts. So they, people who were not enslaved valued what it meant for them not to be enslaved, that they could set their own political goals and benefit 
from political movement, um, from, from freedom of movement, from freedom of action, from freedom of choice. And then they also set their ideas of freedom in the context of um, foreign, um, trying to stave off foreign domination. So it's those two sort of internal and external um, dimensions. So Plato is, I think, um, I think there are moments in his work that show us that he's very well aware that slavery, it was actually practiced in his day, was exploitative and dominating. So for example, he thinks about if someone who owned slaves found themselves on a desert island with only their slaves, he writes, one would assume, you know, that person would be in danger of a slave revolt because why would the slaves want to continue to be enslaved by that master? So I think he recognizes that slavery is exploitative and dominating. And in that way, he really contrasts with the defensive natural slave theory that we find in Aristotle, um, for example. Um, at the same time, Plato does pick up one idea, which from the structure of slavery, um, which is this structure um, that it's a structure of it's a kind of rule, um, and it's a and and what he wants to say is we need rule, but we need rule to be for the good of the ruled. Whereas in the case of slavery, it was for the good of the master, right? So he sort of recognizes that there's a structure there where someone is obeying someone else, and then he says what we need is for that structure to be genuinely for the good of the ruled. And then what he says is that not in terms of real slavery. This is when he's kind of applying this to politics. I mean, and, and then what he says is, um, and moreover, what one of the things that we have to understand is that he uses the language as other Greek um, historians and authors had done, that there's a sense in which in a democratic political community, people need to be in a way he used this language slaves to the laws. They need to be, and what does that mean? It means we need to be willing to obey the laws as, as, as they give rule, orders to us, and we need to be willing to obey political office holders as they give orders. So we need to be, in a sense, slaves of the office holders and the laws. Now, that's not a very comfortable way for us to think about it, but what I think he's getting at is, I think, something that is really relevant and important today, which is what happens when people say, you know, to a political office holder, who are you to tell me what to do? Like, we're, you know, we're all equal. I, why should I have to listen to you? You know, what? and that danger that a democracy won't be able to sustain people being willing to obey those people in office, which is a hierarchical relationship for the time that they're in office, people have to be willing to obey them. That is a real danger for a democracy, because if we don't have that kind of obedience, then we actually lose the whole structure. Now that, I think we can temper that. We don't have to accept everything Plato thinks that we might say there should be room for civil disobedience. I think we should say that. That's important. It doesn't mean we have to obey every single law all the time. But if there's a general habit of law breaking and of not being willing to abide by laws and of, of, of office holders themselves not being willing to abide, then I think there's a really significant danger. And, and, um, and so, so Plato picks up that language of slavery and translates it into the democratic arena in order to drive home that point. So in that case, what he means by slavery is really um, a hierarchical relationship of obedience, but again, stipulating that it needed to be for the good of the ruled, whereas he saw that actual Greek enslavement of other human beings in the case of legal chattel slavery was for the good of those who ruled them. It was for the good of the masters, and he acknowledged um, that fact. 
I, I believe it was Thomas Jefferson who said, the government we elect is the government we deserve. Mm. And I think about that quote in the context of Kevin McCarthy's recent announcement that he will be resigning from his seat in the House of Representatives. McCarthy's departure has left a void and emphasizes the significance of leadership that is needed on that side of Congress. The GOP controls the House of Representatives. And there was a time when the Tea Party was seen as fringe, as the rebellious part of the caucus. Now we're getting to a part where the MAGA faction of the party is taking over. The part of the party that embraces conspiracies, that wants to protect the identity of those who stormed the Capitol by blurring their faces, that wants to legitimize the attempt to overturn uh, the will of the people, and seeks to cast doubt on any future election in which they don't win or get the result that they want. In the context of contemporary politics and McCarthy's resignation, how might Plato's insights inform our understanding of what's going on in our political climate today? And does he offer any recourse as to how we can get back to some semblance of accepting democracy, of accepting the basic rules of when you lose, you concede the election. And when you win, you govern knowing that power is limited. So that idea that power is limited and that power that offices mean limited power. So when I define what is an office and of rule and office, I define an office as a position of limited and accountable power. And, and that I think is a really fundamental idea that again, we've sort of come to take it for granted. I mean, I actually started working on this book in some ways 10 years ago. And when I told people in 2013, 2014, I was writing a book about political office a lot of people thought, boring, you know, who cares about political office? That's not a really interesting, dynamic, important topic. You know, let's think about climate change, which I'd also written a book about and, you know, other things. Those are the, and of course, that is a, you know, earth shatteringly important existential issue. But office seemed like, you know, been there, done that. We kind of know what that is. We learned that in grade school. And so the idea that we've faced in this country, you know, situations where people are not willing to orient themselves by the oath of office, they're not willing to abide by term limits and the peaceful transfer of power. I think, you know, that that's, these are really fundamental challenges and it drives us back to the kind of origins of these ideas and why they're so important. In terms of what Plato might offer us um, specifically in, in, in regard to, to the question that you asked, so one practice of Athenian and Greek politics that Plato, again, takes up in the laws and even in the Republic is the idea that, that offices themselves should be plural. Many Greek offices were actually plural boards. So you had 10 generals, you know, you had 10 people who were overseeing the market, um, uh, you know, the, the markets and so on. You had, so um, you had 10 people who were responsible for, you know, um, weights and measures, you know, there were things like that. And Plato takes that idea over in, in the laws where we saw that much more kind of quasi-democratic organization of elected office holding. But even in the Republic, I've always thought it's a really interesting fact that it's not one philosopher queen or one philosopher king. And I keep saying philosopher queen because Plato explicitly says women can be in that role as well as men, but it's not one. It's a whole group of them. And that is an indication that they need to be checking each other. That actually, when they're in power, one of the reasons that, one of the things that checks them is precisely that there are others and that they're accountable to each other to give an account. 
Um, and so that idea of sort of collective responsibility, the collective responsibility you hold on a House or Senate committee, the collective responsibility you hold in the House or Senate as a whole. I think office holders have to see themselves as not being just the one representative or the one senator, but members of these bodies, and not just a member of the minority or the majority in a committee, but a member of the committee who has a responsibility, you know, again, for the committee as a whole. So that idea of collective exercise of office, I think, is an idea that we could learn from. We've often heard especially in recent years, that this is the most important election of our lifetime. And we've heard that increasingly as we've started to see more extraordinary things happening in the political landscape. We've seen within the past five years, two impeachment proceedings that took place. We've seen an attempt to overturn an election, things that people wouldn't have fathomed during the Watergate proceedings of the early 1970s. There seems to have been this national apathy that has grown as a result of constantly being exposed to such extraordinary events. Does Plato ever talk about the danger of citizens becoming apathetic or desensitized to things that they should not accept as normal from their government and from their political leaders? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, and I need to think more about that question. I think it's very interesting. What I have argued in Of Rule and Office is that he's very worried about apathy of those who are qualified to hold office who choose not to because they're so put off by the political climate. So he does talk absolutely about that. I don't know if he's thinking about it about all citizens, maybe more about a few, but he is very worried that, you know, the young person who might in an earlier era have wanted to go and work in Congress and maybe eventually run for Congress, right? Those people, the people who might've wanted to run for a school board, you know, and we know of course that this can disproportionately inhibit women, people of color and others who are disproportionately subject to vilification in social media, this can disproportionately also inhibit them as well as anyone from being willing to serve in public life. And so Plato is, is, I think, very sensitive to that problem. And he's very sensitive to this paradox that the people that you want to stand up and be counted are sometimes the very people who don't want to because they're sort of put off by the tawdriness, the corruption, the, you know, the ways in which abuse is going to be likely hurled at them. And so his idea when he when he talks about that is, you know, people, again, I think have to be willing to see this as an important social role. And we have to, as citizens, be willing to honor them. So both in the Republic and the laws, he talks about the civic honors that should be given to those people who are willing to serve, even though it's it's going to be demanding and ugly and messy and difficult. And so people, you know, have to be willing to step up and overcome that that apathy. Um, and and that that I think is something that he really is concerned about. Senator Tommy Tuberville of Alabama just had a one man campaign on abortion that faced criticism and ultimately did not achieve its intended goals. How would Plato view such an individualistic approach where you have one man bucking against even his own party to prevent the business of the government from being carried out? So again, I mean, I think this is where I go back to Plato is actually much more of an institutionalist and a realist in that way than I think we sometimes believe. And this is what I really try to argue in of rule in office is that he's a realist who's also an idealist, but he's a you know, and he sees that importance. And again, I think it goes back to that idea of compromise and collegiality, right? That if you're a member of a body, 
it's incumbent. One of your duties is to make the body run well. It's not, I think it's a mistake to think my only duty, if I'm one of a, of a, of a political body, if I'm elected to that role, my only duty is to myself or even only to my constituents. I also have a duty to the institution, right? Because I'm a member of that institution and I'm playing a role in maintaining that institution. And so I think that kind of civic virtue is something that people need to incorporate into their ideals. That's not a betrayal of your ideals to care about having an institution function and to serve the institution. That's actually part of the ideal that you as an office holder are elected to uphold. Some Republicans are considering Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina's 15-week abortion ban as a potential focus that they could use as part of their national platform. How does Plato's philosophy inform the discussion around proposing alternatives and finding common ground on issues that are as divisive as this one? This is going to be the first presidential election since 1972, where we don't have the full protections of Roe versus Wade. We've seen a backlash against the overturning of Roe versus Wade in the recent 2022 midterm elections. And still, a national ban is still being proposed and waved around as if it's still get broad bipartisan consensus. So I can't say that Plato writes about abortion, um, but what I can say is that he's profoundly concerned with how to find common ground among polarized factions. And this is actually another work that we haven't yet mentioned, actually the work of Plato's that I first specialized in um, and continue to think about, which is a dialogue called The Statesman. So he has these three great dialogues in politics, the Republic, which people may more most have heard of, the statesman and the laws. And the statesman actually ends with a discussion that he uses the imagery of hawks and doves, right? So think about a polity which is profoundly divided between hawks and doves. And they disagree about the most basic political judgment. Is this the time to make war or is it the time to make peace, right? And the doves often are tempted to want to make peace too soon, right? Or not to recognize that this might be a moment at which fighting is needed and the hawks might be too bellicose and they're kind of always too ready to go to war. And this is exactly the language he uses. It's exactly this. And, and then he says, you know, what can happen is in a polity, those people don't even want their children to marry each other. Their opinions are so far apart that they they don't even want to have anything to do with each other. And literally, he says they don't want their children to marry each other. And of course, we've now had Pew studies that are tracking the dramatic decline among both Republicans and Democrats in the last 60 years as to those who would be willing or happy about their child marrying somebody from the other party. And so actually, Plato's solution to that is twofold. And again, it's not something that we can kind of just institute. It's not a magic bullet. We can't institute it overnight. But I think he points us in the right direction. So it's two we have to make bonds of common shared opinions. We have to help people to think about the issues and to cultivate through conversation coming closer together on those kinds of judgments about is this a moment for war or a moment for peace. And then we also literally, he says, have to encourage their children to marry each other. And, and you know, sort of writ large, what that means is we have to encourage people to actually interact with each other and to, you know, kind of consider each other potentially part of the same family, even though they have very different orientations, in some ways, different values, right? They're, all their habits are different. So I think Plato actually spoke directly to this kind of moment of polarization and, you know, recognizes its, its profound dangers um, for, for a polity. Yesterday, President Biden passionately called on Congress to pass aid for Ukraine. This failed in the Senate, 
but how might Plato's philosophy guide our understanding of the moral imperative in political leadership on the world stage, especially in urgent situations like the ongoing conflict in Ukraine? Um, in the Statesman, actually, the thing that the hawks and the doves have to be brought to agree on, Plato argues, is the Greek word, the kairos, um, which some people may know also from Christian theology. It's the idea of the right moment for something to happen, right? It's the idea of recognizing in politics what is necessary at a time. And I've actually argued that in that the way Plato defines political knowledge in the statesman is that it is no, recognizing the good in time. It's recognizing when is a season for war, when is a season for peace. That's part of political knowledge. It's not just abstract knowledge. It's not that you know it's always the right time. So I don't, you know that that's not an that's not exactly an answer, but it is to say that you know there's a there, there's a kind of um, question about understanding the the historical moment, and that's part of the job of politicians is to give people the the historical perspective. The, um, the the understanding, the empathy, um, and the judgment to recognize what what a given um, situation and and uh, urgent time um, demands. We're in a time where both sides view each other as the most existential threat to this country. The broader policy deadlock has intensified and manifested itself in stalemates in Congress and the lack of progress being carried out. Bipartisanship seems to be a challenging thing to accomplish these days. Can Plato's exploration of governance offer insights into overcoming ideological differences for the greater good? And I know you talked about that a little bit earlier, but at this point in the game, people are not undecided about Donald Trump and very few folks are undecided about Joe Biden. And so the normal events that usually accompany the choosing of a nominee seem to be done in vain here. The debate cycle, the stump speeches, the Iowa caucuses, the New Hampshire primaries. It seems like there, there's just going to be an inevitable rematch of what we just saw in 2020. And folks are either on team Republican or team Democrat. And they dug their heels in so deep that there's very little willingness to bridge that divide, especially after January the 6th. Yeah, so... I mean, this is, as, 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 as we've been saying, this is such a challenging moment, and I don't want to pretend that Plato had all the answers, you know, um, back in the fourth century um, uh, before the Common Era. Um, but, I, but I do think that, again, a kind of maybe stepping back and seeing the, both the importance of the institutions and the procedures and why it matters if those debates and um, primaries and ordinary practices are being hollowed out, right? And trying to remember what they were for. So maybe that's one way we can try to help people to combat their apathy and their desensitization, as you spoke about before, um, right? We have to help people to go back and see what, what was the point of these things, right? So if you remember, you know, back in 2015, it was truly shocking that Trump was not uh, releasing his tax returns, right? That was a break with the pra practice of nominees of both of candidates of both parties um, for decades. And so, and so we've kind of already moved past, so far past that we've kind of forgotten that. But if we say, well, what was the point of that? The point of that, right, was so that people could see whether people, someone had enriched themselves um, unjustly um, or even just in ways that might make them um, subject to, you know, potential blackmail or potential, um, uh, you know, sort of um, 
uh, lobbying in the future, right? It was a way of kind of, and actually this is really interesting because this was a Greek practice as well. If you were uh, selected for an office in Athens, you weren't allowed to take it up until you could prove that you were a citizen in good standing. And one thing that meant was that proving that you'd paid your taxes. Right. So I think if we sort of go back to the question of, you know, what's the reason for these? Why do we want people to answer questions on the debate stage? Why would it matter if a candidate chooses not to subject themselves to public debate? What's the value of that, that kind of questioning? What's the value of these norms and expectations? I think if we can maybe, you know, get underneath them and, and not just talk about the, you know, not just sort of take them for granted, but go back to basics and maybe Plato and the Greeks can help us. Um, to do that. And if we have a moment, I'd love to also talk about what Plato can tell us about the Supreme Court, because I have some thoughts about that too. Most definitely. As you were speaking, a thought did come to me. I thought about a quote by President John F. Kennedy, who recently, the 60th anniversary of his passing, the assassination that took place on November 22nd, 1963. And he, he said that the ignorance of one voter could imperil us all. Mm. And I think about that in the context of someone like a George Santos, who can ride the wave of political power and in, in, into the halls of Congress on nothing but lies. He lied about who he said he was. He lied about his record. He lied about his history. And then the lack of remorse, the attitude of, well, I'm not the only one and I've got receipts for others and to, to heck with this place. The, the character of the people that we choose has seemed to be in such a decline in recent yeah. years. So this is really, I mean, this is, again, I think points to a very profound issue in another one of Plato's dialogues called the Protagoras, which I don't discuss in Of Rule and Office, but I was teaching it with my students this semester. Um, Plato's uh, character there talks about the centrality to political life of a sense of, of, of reverence or respect and a sense of shame. And what's argued there is that if you don't have a capacity for shame and so a willingness to be ashamed if you act wrongly, in a sense, political life can't happen because we have to be able, if, if you act wrongly, I have to be able to say to you, you know, you acted wrongly and you have to say, you know, I'm sorry. I, you know, I realize I'm going to try to do better next time. And if somebody just brushes it off, refuses to ever admit that they were wrong, and this goes for politicians on all sides, you know, people on every in every party, of course, can make mistakes. The important thing is, though, that they have a willingness to be appropriately ashamed, right? We don't want to shame people for things that they have no reason to feel shame about. There's, shame can be misused. But in terms of this, this sort of um, ability to kind of, you know, what you were talking about, the lack of remorse um, that, that George Santos, for example, shows, right? That is a really corrosive political uh, situation for someone to have a complete lack of remorse. And I've been following um, in British politics, Boris Johnson giving evidence there about um, to the, their inquiry into COVID-19 and his decisions as prime minister. And his um, one of the, the themes in the newspapers um, commenting on his performance has been how hollow his expressions of contrition have been and how clear it, you know, how it doesn't sound as if he genuinely feels ashamed of some of the um, decisions and, and uh, statements that he that he made that that you know were, were arguably reckless um, and and led to unnecessary deaths and that isn't to say of course that it wasn't a hard situation it was a hard situation for all politicians um, so but um, so yeah so I think Plato would say to us you know we are in danger if we are attracted to politicians who are are shameless that 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 is a threat to the Republic and 
that just contradicts this notion of picking someone who is just going to go and shake things up. Someone who has no appreciation for the Constitution, the limits of constitutional power and authority. Someone who's just being plucked out of anywhere in the private sector and just being thrown into Congress to quote unquote shake things up and and you know it hasn't worked out for us that's something that i hope is a big takeaway from this episode but you alluded to the supreme court and, and i do want to get your opinions about plato's take on an institution like the supreme court because a lot of folks have lost faith in the supreme court a lot of polls show that americans view the, the supreme court as another political institution sandra day o'connor the first female supreme court justice recently passed away this past week a lot of folks blame the role that she played in the bush versus gore decision as the beginning, the opening of the door to the politicization of the court, when they when they decided to intervene and stop the recount in Florida in 2000, which hand delivered the presidency to George W. Bush and changed the trajectory of history in the 21st century forever. What would Plato think about the idea of a Supreme Court? Would he think that it was a naive idea to have a, a group of nine people who are above the fray, who would never be influenced or tainted by politics? And I, and I ask that in light of recent revelations by Clarence Thomas getting favors and kickbacks from large influential donors, and then even Samuel Alito going on a fancy salmon fishing trip in Alaska with another donor. What would Plato think about such an institution? So what's so interesting is that Plato absolutely thought about an institution of people who are in power for life once they come into power and who are not subject to election um, or to term limits and who are the highest authorities in their society. And that is the description of Plato's philosopher kings and queens in the Republic. So there are many similarities, I think, um, a sort of unaccountable in the sense of the ordinary institutions of accountability don't apply to them. But what's so interesting is that Plato, for that very reason, imposed extremely strict, proposed that there should be imposed extremely strict um, material constraints on those rulers, um, those philosophers who would be in that kind of um, life um, life term um, term uh, you know uh, uh, term of power. And those constraints would include, for example, they should not even be able to own private property. Because if they can own private property, they can be wanting to accumulate it for the benefit of their own families. And even it went so far as they shouldn't even have their own families. Because if they don't have their own families and they can't own private property, then they can't be corrupt. Right? We literally couldn't have um, those kinds of situations um, that you were describing arising. Now, you know, we don't want to go that far. But I think what that's saying is it's saying, I think, something very important. It's saying, you know, as you know, right now, the, the Supreme Court justices are not even subject to the same ethical binding rules or code as other federal judges. And what Plato would say is not only should they be subject to the same, they should be subject to higher, you know, higher demands. There should be more constraints on their disclosure and on their ability to earn and to receive gifts. And I think it would be in his spirit to say that their spouses and families should be subject to higher disclosures and higher constraints as well. That's the price of the civic honor of someone, you know, someone taking on that role. And so I think it's actually paradoxical because we think we live in a democracy and we have a more unaccountable Supreme Court that is more open to potential corruption than Plato's philosopher kings and queens um, would have been because he imposed 
genuinely strict. And he called them laws. He said these should be established as laws, these legal regulations that would prevent them from being able to accumulate property and so to use their power um, to benefit themselves. So in conclusion, Professor, before I let you go, how can scholars, policymakers, students, the general public, how can they leverage the insights from this book of rule and office to navigate the complexities of today's political landscape and to ensure that they don't fall victim to apathy and to complacency? So I think that the most important thing is to go back to the original purposes of our political institutions and our political procedures and of the very idea of political office itself. We have to remember that all of these institutions of accountability, the convention of releasing income tax returns, the subject, the, the willingness to abide by court decisions, living up to one's oath of office, acting collegially with colleagues to preserve the institutions of, of government. All of those are responsibilities that pertain to the original purpose of government, which is that government should not be a matter of rulers benefiting themselves, but genuinely serving the good of the ruled. We have to go back to the original meaning of, of rulers as public servants, and we have to realize that it's up to all of us as citizens to expect that of, of those uh, whom we elect or, or choose to lead. Well, Professor, this was a intellectually stimulating discussion. I thoroughly enjoyed speaking with you. And again, the name of the book is Of Rule and Office, Plato's Ideas of the Political. It'll make a wonderful Christmas gift. Thank you so much for the, the wealth of knowledge that you brought to the table tonight. With that being said, that's going to conclude episode 122 of the Pokemon Podcast. Thank you all for tuning in. Hi, it's Mike Taylor, the host of the Political Mike podcast. If you like what you heard tonight, I want to invite you to subscribe to our YouTube channel. I also want to ask you to please follow along on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, and Amazon Music. You can also follow along and keep up with the conversation through our Telegram channel. Follow us on Twitter at, at ThePolyMike, and follow us on Instagram. Thank you so much, and no matter what part of the political spectrum that you fall on, I want to encourage you to stay engaged, stay a part of the conversation, and stay informed. Thank you.